Amen. We are diving into Philippians chapter 3, all right? Philippians chapter 3. I suddenly regret not bringing my Bible today, um, but we do have it up on the slides, okay? So we're going to do it. But before I do that, I'm going to do a quick overview of Philippians two, 1 and 2, just what we've been doing about the book of Philippians. Because the book of Philippians, we're going to reiterate this again, um, because we want to we want to teach within the context of the bigger picture, right? And so within this context of the bigger picture, Philippians, it really centers, the book of Philippians, is, is it centers around a, a short passage in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. Right, and it's the it's the passage where it says it's talking about Jesus. Right, at the very center of the the book of Philippians is a is a little it's a little poem really. It's written in the style of poetry, and it's when Apostle Paul switches out of his teaching tone and talking tone into the poetic tone, and he's like. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be, you know, and, and he emptied himself and became like man, and he died on the cross, and obedient to God, even to death, death on the cross, and now he is exalted into the highest place, and at the, name, at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. It's like this, it's this beautiful image, right? It's the image of Jesus who is willing to come down to be like man, to, to actually sacrifice, to lay things down that are rightfully his and to, for the sake of loving people, right? It's sacrificial living. And he actually found joy in that. He showed us that we can find joy in laying things down. Yeah. He showed us that we can find joy in even taking on burdens, doing the hard things, the difficult things, right? And all of Philippians is just, uh, it's just hitting that same idea, it's the idea of, hey, we are called, just as Jesus lived, we are called to live as he lived, to walk in his footsteps, to become like him. And it shows us as we live like Jesus, we can find joy even in suffering, right? And Pastor Dell did such a good job last week of, of really capturing what that looks like, that Jesus, though he was willing to lay down his rights, lay down the things that he was entitled to, to lay down his, his, his uh, image and his glory and all that so that he could show love to us, right? And and so we ought to live like that. And, and he talked about how that's how our church relationships should look like, how when we love each other, we got to love each other the way Jesus lived, when we, and also how we interact with the world, right? So it's all about emulating the lifestyle of Jesus. Amen? That's what Philippians is about. And then in Philippians chapter 3, we get into a place where Apostle Paul now is talking about himself, okay? He's talking about himself. And this is such an important passage because right here, I believe he, what Apostle Paul does is that he gets into the real essence of the gospel. Amen? Because Philippians 2, 6 through 11 was about the example of Jesus. But then in Philippians 3, he really comes back and captures what's the gospel all about. Okay? What's the gospel all about? And he only, he actually doesn't spend a bunch of time because other, other books of the Bible, Apostle Paul, he's in teaching mode. Okay, Philippians, Apostle Paul's not in teaching mode. He's not trying to teach like a long theology and a, and a structured academic study on salvation. He's just coming back. He just is like, like he's talking to a friend, reminding them about, guys, this, we have to remember, this is what the gospel's really about, right? And, he's, and so he doesn't try to give a long like teaching on it, but he just comes back to it. Right? And I just want to take a minute, before we dive into how Apostle Paul is talking about the, the gospel in Philippians 3, what I want to do for us is to give us a bigger framework. And it's, it's not going to make sense at first why I'm talking about it, but I'm going to bring it back into Philippians, okay? But we're going to take a step back away from Philippians, and I want to talk about the gospel, okay? 
I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about sin. I just want to give us a big picture understanding of what's happening. What is sin? What does it mean to be human? What is the cross? What is salvation? And where am I heading? Okay? Can we do that? Yeah. Say, say amen if you want to hear that. Amen. Okay, perfect. So we're going to get real big, all right? We're going to get real big. Now, before I even talk about the Bible and stuff like that, what I'm going to do and Hold on to your socks, okay? We're going we're gonna to talk about psychology. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm actually going to talk a lot about psychology today just because I want to give a framework for something. This is important because I actually felt this. I was talking to a couple of my pastor friends last night, and I was actually discovering that I feel very strongly about this, that I believe that a lot of the psychology, the, 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 the emergence and the growth of the field of psychology is similar to... A couple hundred years ago when there was having the scientific revolution, okay? So just like a few hundred years ago, there's, there started becoming this, this movement called the scientific revolution or the enlightenment, right? And what happened was it was a, a return to a lot of like the scientific method. There was a, a, a return to reason and wanting to be logical about stuff and, and wanting to be, talk about history and facts and science and all that stuff. And about two, three hundred years ago was when it started to, to be born, okay? Now, originally when this whole scientific revolution, when science started coming back into the world, or not even coming back, but coming into the world and coming into the church, originally, it actually caused a ton of problems. There was actually a lot of panic, okay, a lot of panic, because all of a sudden, what was a result of a lot of the scientific revolution was people starting to realize a lot of the stuff in the Bible doesn't make sense anymore, right? And there was a ton of fear around that. And there's actually even some pastors who, not some, yeah, there are pastors and theologians, like one guy named like Schleiermacher, I don't know if you've ever heard that word, or Spinoza. There's these famous people who are in the 1800s. They were like kind of the godfathers of modern liberal theology, and they were born, they were riding the wave of the scientific revolution. And so they were looking at the Bible, and they were doing stuff like, oh, like, obviously, according to science, like, miracles don't actually happen, right? And if we look at history, we realize, oh, Jesus probably actually didn't even exist, Oh, and they're coming back to all this stuff. You see what's happening? It was the emergence of the scientific method and, and wanting to dig into history and all that stuff. It existed before, but the, the, with the strength that it came in the 1700s, it brought about a movement that actually endangered a lot of, the fa a lot of faith and a lot of theology and led people astray a lot. Like Schleiermacher was actually really interesting. He didn't believe in like the Holy Spirit. He didn't believe in Jesus. He believed in like, oh, it's all just kind of like metaphor to teach us how to become like more happy and more whole in life. That's not really accurate with how he teached it. It, taught it. But do you guys get what I mean? That's the scary part. And he believed it wholeheartedly. He preached it passionately, but he didn't believe in Jesus anymore. It's crazy, right? So it's scary. And so a lot of Christians saw that and were like, science is bad, right? Science is from the devil. Science is taking away our faith. But then nowadays we can look back and be like, no, I mean, okay, that was a strong reaction. You freaked out, you know, but actually the more that we really dive into it, Science supports a lot of our faith. Actually, a lot of stuff of like, even not just science in terms of like chemistry and physics and that kind of stuff, but like the, the historical sciences, right? They're like things that at one point they were like, oh, if we look too closely into history and sociology and all that stuff, it'll start disproving our things. But actually what happened was the, the case for the existence of Jesus and for the resurrection got stronger. That's the more that theologians were starting to really take history seriously again. 
You get what I mean? And it started, as we dive and we take it on, it transformed the way that pastors do exegesis, the way that we study the Bible, the way that we look at faith, the way that we, we learn. Nowadays, it feels natural. We talk about history, right? We talk about, we talk about science. How do these things line up with reality? And what does that mean for our faith today? Right? So what at first seemed scary and new and posed some potential threats actually became a real gift to the church to deepen our faith and to, to expand our understanding of theology and of God and of the story of, of the Bible. Amen? So when I look at today, I feel like psychology can feel that way. A lot of psychology can feel that way because people can look at psychology and there was actually about um, 30, 40 years ago, a guy named John MacArthur, he... This is important for church history, okay? So for us to kind of understand where we are. John MacArthur, he, he made this really strong statement and he wrote like this important article and he like nailed it on the wall and like he took the stand and his, 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 he like declared war on psychology. And actually what happened was that Biola, I went to Biola University and they started, it's a Christian university and they started a school of psychology and he pretty much condemned Biola. He's saying, you guys have officially gone off the deep end. Why? Because psychology is satanic. Okay, he actually made that, but his, the idea was, see, when psychology, what it does is it says that you sin, you do all these bad things, not because that you're a bad person, it's because bad things have happened to you. And so therefore, you're not responsible for all the bad things you've done. And so his idea was like, what's happening is psychology is saying people don't need to feel bad about what they've done. You don't need to be sorry about stuff. You have no more responsibility. So that's anti-gospel, right? So there was this fear that was coming in. So, so we have to step away from it as far as we can. Okay, we're going to address some of that stuff. But I'm saying all this to say, in what ways has psychology illuminated and deepened and enriched our understanding of the soul, of the inner world, of, of, of the spiritual life and of the story of God? Okay? All right, so you on board with me? All that was a defense to just say, I'm going to talk about psychology. Don't get mad at me. All right? So... So what first I'm going to do is I'm not even going to come from a Christian perspective, okay? I'm actually going to ex explain a little bit and don't, don't, you know, don't clip this segment out of this sermon and be like, look, he's teaching things that are not, he doesn't believe in God. I'm going to give a little bit of just a, a, a big picture of what a lot of modern psychology, particularly like psychodynamic theory and stuff like that, of what it captures. I'm kind of glad Kelly, Kalisha's not here because she's a therapist. I'm like going to get nervous if she hears everything I'm saying. I'm wrong. But... Um, I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of, the, of modern philosophy of psychology. Can we do that? Yeah. And this is going to be super helpful. So I want to talk about someone named Karen Horney. All right. Horney spelled H-O-R-N-E-Y, the type of name that makes middle schoolers laugh. Okay. Karen Horney. Okay. And, and, okay. And Jonathan Castro. Okay. Same thing. Middle schoolers. Yeah. And. Karen Horney was kind of the, one of the main uh, successors of, of Freud, okay? So Freud was kind of like the godfather. Every day, everybody understands modern psychology, Freud was like the godfather of it. And really, basically, what his, a lot of his theories were about like what happens in childhood affects what happens when you get older. That sounds very simple, but it was like groundbreaking, okay? And he had all the kind of weird thoughts about it. But Karen Horn, I took that, and actually I feel like her perspective on it was a little bit more positive because Freud's version was kind of like really dark and a lot about sex and stuff like that. But, but Karen Horn, I took a lot of his basic theory and, and went at a little different perspective and really is considered one of the premier like foundational academics on modern psychology. Okay, so what we're going to do is talk about Karen Horney. Okay, so her, her theory is this, 
And she has this book. You can look it up. It's, called, uh, it's by Karen Horne. It's called Neurosis and Human Growth. Okay, Neurosis and Human, human Growth. But don't read it, because then you'll know that I'm not doing a good job teaching it. So, <laughs> just kidding. Neurosis and Human Growth, okay? So she says, essentially, a human child, a baby, when they're born, you have basic needs, okay? And for a baby to grow, this is going to sound really, really obvious and simple, but we're going to walk through it, all right? For a, for a baby to grow and to develop into a healthy, functional adult, they need to have these basic needs met, okay? And I'm just going to capture what are these basic needs. Um, I'm actually not using Karen Horney's language, right? But dang, it's way too small. I'm not going to use Karen Horney's language. I'm actually going to share something uh, that's kind of adapted from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you guys know what that is. Uh, but... Okay, right here. We good? And let's say the very basic human needs can be captured in three things, okay? It's not gonna be perfect because it's, it's complex what humans need, but I'm gonna try to capture in just three basic ideas. And the pyramid's important because it's, uh, it's progressive, right? So the first basic needs are safety, okay? Safety. And safety can mean all kinds of stuff. Okay, and let me just write them all out first. Safety. Love and significance. Dang it, why is the biggest word in the smallest square? Signif, yeah, you got it, right? Significant. And safety, love, and significance. This is kind of adapted from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and safety can kind of capture a couple things. Like there's physiological safety, like you need to feel literally safe, like you're not gonna freeze to death, you're not, you're gonna, you're not gonna get eaten by an animal, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna starve to death, all those things. Like, just to survive safety, okay? Human beings need to feel like they're gonna survive, all right? And, but then there's also psych, like, psychological safety, which is like, um, am I gonna have enough money to get by? You know, am I gonna be able to provide for my kids? It's just a feeling of security, right? And it's, it's, it's messy, but it's all that in here. Feelings of security, feelings of like, is it okay to, to be here? Am I gonna, do I, you know, all that stuff. And then it also kind of melds into love. Okay, and love, what I'm talking about here, this is such a broad subject, but love is, it, it, it captures like affection, care, um, belonging, support, like someone that listens, someone that cares, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, it's communal, but it's also individual. Like you need to feel like a part, like one-to-one, -one, you, know, you know, be connected to your mom and dad, and, but you also need to feel a part of a community and like you have a place and you know your I identity and all that comes there. And then significance, is capturing, I need to feel like I matter. I need to feel like I'm actually like different from other people and I have a name and I have an individual identity and I matter, I, I'm, I'm valuable. And there, it starts there and like, oh, I'm actually kind of like, kind of important. Like I actually am important. I'm not just like a random person on the street. And then that can even, that, like that's kind of the lower end of significance and the higher end is like, I have a purpose. There's something I'm meant to accomplish. There's a reason I'm here. There's something only I can contribute to the world, and I need to fulfill that. And, and all of these things capture the need for, for basic human need. Amen? So this is, and Karen Horney talks about this, not super in-depth, but she talks about that. But then what happens is a kid, in an ideal world, they would get everything from their parents. 
right? When you're a little kid and you're just a little baby and you're being raised by your mom and dad, you would just get everything perfectly the way that you need it. You, they, they don't have any issues. They're never like, they're never, they're never dealing with their own stress and their own anxiety. They can just be there for you perfectly and just be like angels to you. But the reality is that is not the case, right? And so what happens when a, a kid or a person, um, so let's look at this. So this, this is the basic human need, right? So let's just draw a little human being. This little, little person. Dang it, it's dying on me. A little bit of hair. And he's a little triangle, okay? Because he have needs. It's a, it's a dress. <laughs> but it's, it's needs, right? Significance, love, safety. So this is a human, and what happens when they don't get these things? What happens when a little kid, and it's not always so clear thinking, you can be like less, you can be younger than one and still feel like you don't have these things and your parents don't provide it and you experience what she defines as basic anxiety. When it's, it's a feeling of I'm not getting what I need and it's instinctual. You just know you need to feel safe. You need to feel seen. You need to feel understood. You need to feel loved. You need to feel significant. You need to feel all that kind of stuff and and it, it, you're feeling like you're not getting it. And what happens? You experience basic anxiety. Something's off. Something's missing. Something's not right. Okay? So you experience basic anxiety, right? You experience basic anxiety. It's this, it's this feeling of, I'm not getting what I need. And then when you don't get what you need, what happens is you start to develop what she calls neurosis. Okay? And neurosis is in order to get these things, I need to blank, right? I need to whatever it is. I need to cry harder for my parents to pay attention to me and make me feel like I matter again. I need to be a perfectly good little boy. And if I can be a perfectly good little boy, then my parents will finally pay attention to me and love me and show the affection that I need, right? So it doesn't begin as neurosis, but when it gets so bad to the point of dysfunction, she calls it neurosis, right? But originally, this is just, this is how humans function. It's how, as a little kid, you just do it instinctually, right away. You just start reacting. I'm not getting what I need, so I need to cry, or I need to throw a tantrum, or I need to, or I need to do something. I need to... Um, they make me feel uh, weak, so I need to fight back and lash back at them and show them like, that I'm powerful, that I matter, right? Or I need, to, uh, I need to be extra needy, and so they'll know that, that, that I need love, and they'll do. And so all these patterns that develop, all these patterns that develop, she calls these neurosis. Because what happens is you get older, and you get so used to it, and you can get, so, you can get obsessed with it. Right? She says, you become neurotic when you are so obsessed with this need. If I can just become famous, then finally I'll feel like I matter. Right? If I can just um, find that one person who's going to meet all of my needs, if I can just get married... Right? So she talks about, she actually identifies like 10 basic neurotic needs, right? Um, I can list them real quick, but it's like need for affection and approval, need for a loving partner or rescuer, need for social recognition, prestige, need for personal admiration, need for power, need to control, need for personal achievement, need for self-sufficiency, need for perfection, right? So it's really just essentially we develop all these different ways of feeling like if I can just get this thing, 
then I'll finally feel like I'm getting what I need. Because no baby is going around like, okay, well, I need safety and love and significance. And so I need to make sure that I do it in the right way. It doesn't work like that. You just, it's more instinctual. Something's missing. What's the thing that I need? I need to feel like I matter. And I'm just going to do this. And you start developing, and, you, and it doesn't, it's not always super logical, but it just happens. It just develops in us. And as we grow, we just get so used to doing it. It happens like a knee-jerk reaction. You guys with me? Yeah. Right? If you want to start talking about Enneagram language, really, it's, we can think of, essentially, there's nine different ways that we try to get this stuff. Right? That's really kind of what Enneagram revolves around. It's around like neurosis and, and dysfunction, right? And, but, so that's, what, this is, this is really what Karen Horney talks about, right? And, and, her whole thing is, one, you kind of, you can't recover the stuff, but what you can do is start like identifying the false uh, narratives. You can, you can be like, oh, it's like, why, why do I think um, if I can just be famous, then I'll finally matter, you know? And, and you kind of start to learn to hold these things in check, and, and, and you got to learn to find these things in a way that's uh, not crazy, that you're not neurotic about it. You know, you ever meet somebody who's, when they talk about someone being neurotic, it's like, they can't stop doing something, right? And so it's it's sometimes it's obvious in people, but everybody's neurotic in small ways, right? Um, but um, where am I? Just blanking. What did I just say? Neurosis. Oh, and so there's no. Uh, the answer is just we got to learn to deal with it and make the best of it. How do we kind of? Uh, adjust some of our neuroses to become a little bit healthier and to begin to learn how to meet these needs in a healthy way because you can't go back and fix your childhood and all that stuff, okay? And so a lot of modern, uh, modern, modern, modern psychology is really just about how, helping you identify your neurosis, helping you identify the patterns of thinking, right? Like when you learn as a kid, if I can just, uh, if I just complain more, then, you know, if I just talk about what I'm feeling more, then people will finally pay attention to me. And you just develop that thinking. So I, I have to talk more about my feelings. I have, to, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to, I have to say more. I have to be heard more. And if I can just finally talk. And you, it's these patterns of thinking and behaviors that develop personality, right? And so what a lot of modern psychology is really like, so, okay, I want to just draw these little things, right? Like here's, um, here's like uh, worrying. Let's say this is worry. Can you guys even, you can't read that, right? But this is worry. And so you start thinking, like it's connected to a, a way of thinking of like, if I worry a ton, then I'll always be safe, right? If I can just, if I just gotta always make sure nothing will ever harm me. So, so and every time I worry, I end up safe. So I just gotta keep on worrying and worrying and then you come 40 years old and you can't turn it off, right? And you can't turn it off. And, and or you have a, you know, a career. You know, if I can just be famous, and, and there's like this way of thinking that says, if I can just feel, if I can just make enough success, then I'll finally feel like people respect me. You know, people finally look up to me, and I'll feel like I'm important, right? Because I need to feel like I'm important, right? And so what a lot of, what, what therapists are helping us do is helping us identify these, these, these patterns of thinking that lead us into dysfunctional behavior. You with me? Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, some of these dysfunctional behaviors can be much worse, like... Um, I need to steal, you know, like I need to lie and cheat and steal in order to get what I need in order to feel powerful or whatever it is. And it can be like straight up really dysfunctional and dangerous. And it's like, okay, let's talk about this. Why do you keep stealing, you know, and that kind of stuff. But then, so this is, we didn't talk about God even once, right? But now I'm going to shift it a little bit into a, a Christian perspective, okay? 
Are you guys tracking with me here? This is really simple. It's an oversimplification, but it's, it, we're getting a, an idea, right? An image of what's happening, okay? I believe a lot of this is true. It's just the human, we experience these things, okay? But what happens in the Christian perspective, I want to jump back to the Garden of Eden. So what happens? Garden of Eden, um, this little guy, we'll, we'll call him Adam, right? Adam, even though he's wearing a dress, which is... Okay, because wearing a dress is a social construct of gender. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway sorry. Uh, Jesus probably wore a dress, right? right. Um, we're not that kind of here, I swear, okay? But in the Garden of Eden, he was perfectly connected to the source, right? In the Christian perspective, what I'm going to say, like this, this big triangle over here, this big Illuminati, right, is, is this is God. This is God, okay? He's a big person too, okay? He's a big person, and this is God, okay? Or I mean, this is, this is like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a trinity, okay? I just thought of that. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> it's nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it just looks cool. This is God, and in the Garden of Eden, perfect connection, where there is in full, complete union and communion with God, where they have every need met, they feel completely known. They don't have to explain themselves to God. They just feel understood by God. They don't have to, you know, it's just like, they, they just know without even thinking, I have everything I need. I'm safe. I'm loved. I matter. I, I actually rule the world. You know, I'm meant to rule over the, the animals and all that kind of stuff and take care of the earth. And it's just like complete union. But what happens? They sin. All right, so we're going to introduce the word sin. What happened is, is Adam and Eve, they, they felt like they wanted to feel significant or something. And so that they ate the fruit. They went and like there was some fruit here, an apple, and they ate it. And what happened was this action of going to something outside of the source. That's what sin was. Sin was an action of trying to meet your needs that were meant to be connected to this. What happens is because it is, we have the need and we found it outside of God, Right? There is sin. And what's the consequence of sin? The word is death or separation, disconnection from God. So then what happened was when Adam and Eve sinned, there was brokenness here. Brokenness here. And we didn't have access to this in the same way anymore. Right? Didn't have access to this. And even when you look right in the next chapter, in chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first story, what happens? Cain, he's jealous of his brother. His brother's getting the attention. His brother feels loved. His brother feels significant. Why don't I feel that? And so out of jealousy, he, what is he doing? He needs to kill. He needs to take in order to get the, I need to feel important too. I want to feel like I'm loved by God. I want to do this. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get it in my own way. Right? And so God is like, Cain, don't you know sin is crouching at your door? Because sin isn't just the actions. Sin is, all the, is also just the state the condition he's in of being disconnected from God. Because what happens when, it, when a human being, you see the, the little significance and love and safety that they need? They have nowhere to get it. The fact that you have these needs and you're disconnected from the source, that's what I call the condition of being in sin. When we've inherited, when we talk about original sin, original sin was this first disconnection, this sin that happened, and we inherited this condition where we, we are disconnected from the source and we're, we're screwed. 
We have nowhere to get it. We try to get it from our parents, and they're supposed to help us a little bit, but they screw up a lot, and we, try, we learn all these different ways of doing it, but we're trying, right? Because sin is both a, a, is a being and a doing. Okay, repeat after me and say being. being. Repeat after me and say doing. It's both a being and a doing, okay? So that's kind of kind of a controversial statement just because, um, because what you can get into here is, see, there's a lot of a talk, coming back to John MacArthur, right? John MacArthur and his idea that psychology is evil, is, is satanic or demonic, is that if we look at sin as just brokenness, because right? we talk about being and doing, there's brokenness, which is being disconnected and feeling the basic anxiety of not, you know that you need something, something's wrong, but you're disconnected from it. That basic anxiety, that's a sinful condition. We're, we're born into anxiety. We can't get what we need, right? Um, if, we, if we look at sin as just that, then it's, then it's true. Like, then there's nothing that we've done wrong. Oh, because we're born into this, then I only sin because I don't have what I need, right? And so there's a danger of, like, there's a lot of theologians today talking about, like, sin is not brokenness, okay? Brokenness is a result of sin, and you need to know that because you've done wrong before God, and you need to repent of that, and you owe, you owe an apology. You owe, you're, you owe a debt. You get what I mean? And so there's a lot of kind of fear around, hey, if we make, psych if we make sin just about something's wrong with you, and you need, then there's no such thing as repentance anymore then there's no such thing as a need to uh, for have forgiveness. Like, why do I need to be forgiven if, if just all my issues were because I'm broken? Right? It's not my fault. But I believe that we can both be broken and sin and still be responsible for our sin. Amen? Like, anybody knows this. Like, if you, if you look at somebody who, let's say, a young man um, commits rape, okay? And then as they're uncovering, everyone's like, oh, he's just evil. He's just evil because only evil people do that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, Hey, actually, he was, you know, molested when he was young, and he was abused by his parents, and he was neglected, and he never had an example of what healthy relationship looked like, and all that stuff. All of a sudden, there's reasons. There's psychology. He's broken, right? But nobody here is going to say, oh, therefore, it's totally okay that he raped somebody. There's still responsibility. You can take responsibility while still recognizing there's brokenness that needs to be addressed. Amen? And so sin, our sinful state is both two things that need to be addressed. It's the doing, the wrong that we've done that has, because what happens is when we sin, because we're broken people, right? We don't have access to the source, so we do all kinds of stupid stuff. We do all kinds of stupid things to try and meet that need. And the way, all of human personality really revolves around how do we meet our needs, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, because when I... I like to, when I make things funny, it makes me feel like life's good and positive, so I just became known as the funny guy, wow. right? But really, it's like, that's just how you learn to cope, because when you were little, like, you, you felt alone, you felt neglected, so you had to make fun, because when you feel like you're having fun, you feel like life is good, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, like, you're realizing, oh my gosh, my entire personality of being the funny, lighthearted guy is, is, is based in trauma and in the neurosis, right? You guys, in brokenness. I'm a broken person, right? So there's a million different ways we do that, okay? But what happens is this. When we sin, the more we sin, the greater this, this divide becomes. Because the, the punishment of sin, could just, it only compounds. So what happens is we're broken, and so we sin, and when we sin, we're more broken, and then more, we're more broken, so we sin more. So it's this hopeless cycle. How can we ever escape it? 
How can we ever get out of this? What can, how do I ever get, get, get away from, this, from this, this neurotic need, this, this basic anxiety? I'm broken and I don't know what to do about it, right? So this is what happens. When we talk about the gospel, there's, three, there's one beautiful way to put it. It's with three Ps, okay? I like alliteration. So we talk about sin. How does the gospel, how does the cross of Jesus Christ, how does it address the problem of sin, okay? First is, first P is it absolves the punishment of sin. What's the punishment of sin? It's this brokenness right here. So the forgiveness of sins, because the consequences of the actions, of the doing of sin, it absolves it, right? And so the, the, the blood of Jesus, it washes, and it, it removes the, the, the barrier that we have to have access, okay? To have access. And that's where it starts. And I think that's actually a lot of where gospel teaching ends in a lot of modern American um, preaching. It's, hey, forgiveness of sins, we're good. Now we should just be good, right? But we don't address another aspect of like, well, why do I still struggle with things? Why do I still feel angry sometimes, even though I know that I shouldn't be angry? Why do I still get jealous? Why do I still feel lonely? Why do I still feel this need to prove myself? Why do I still, all these things. And what's happening there is the gospel also addresses, right, the power of sin. Okay, so first was punishment. It cleared the way, okay? But when I talk about the power of sin, what I'm talking about is this, is these needs we have in this little, this little cute little baby. It's the power of sin is we have this need and it's attached to all these bad behaviors. It's attached to all these bad thoughts, all these things that we believe, these lies or these, these unhealthy dysfunctional habits that we have of, of worrying or stealing or cheating or, 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 or faking or whatever, or, or whatever it is, these things that we, we develop, right? And that's the power of sin because we spent so much of our life living in sin. We spent 30 years thinking like, I'm only gonna be important if I'm famous. And that doesn't just disappear in a second. Because as much as the punishment is gone, I have access now. Well, I spent 30 years telling myself, you only matter if you become successful. You, you, you will never feel satisfied until you find the love of your life that's going to meet all your needs. Right? You all, it, it's whatever. There's a million different things we do. And, but that's the power of sin in our lives. See, but what the, the gospel does is it gives us access into this into this into the source, into this beautiful triangle, right? This trinity, this, this access into God. And so what happens is the hard work, the lifelong process, because I think this is what sanctification is. It's undoing the power of sin in our lives. And the undoing the power of sin is recognizing, oh my gosh, I still, even though, I, even though I'm a Christian now, even though I have access to God, I still feel, I still think that if I, I need to worry in order to feel safe, I need to have a good career in order to feel significant, right? I need to um, be really nice and friendly and, and helpful in order to feel loved, right? And the process of taking, identifying that lie, hey, your worrying isn't what saves you, isn't what makes you feel safe. It comes from being connected to God, right? Hey, it's, it's not your career that's going to do that. It's, it's what's making you feel insignificant. It's not because you, if I can just get this job, then I'll finally feel good, right? Like, no, it's undoing the power of that sin where you've learned this and this, this, this habit. You guys with me? You guys understanding, right? And it's 
coming back to the source, coming back to the source, learning to detach from these things that we've, have become ingrained in how we live and how we think and how we function and learning to come back to the source, right? So the gospel is doing and doing the power of sin and that's the process of sanctification. Amen, you guys with me? So and I wanna talk really briefly too about guilt and shame because guilt is around the actions of sin, the doing of sin, right? Oh, you're broken and so you stole because you think if I steal, then I'll feel whatever, I don't know. And if I lie, then I'll feel significant. And that's the lying is the doing of sin, right? And we feel guilt around the doing. And I wanna say that guilt and shame they can be both be done in healthy ways. They, they, God gave us guilt and shame, the, the capacity to feel it for good reason, right? In the same way that we can feel hungry, and because that's a sign that something's missing, like we need some food in our bellies, but then you can also overeat. You know, if you're if you're your whole life, <laughs> Pastor Joe's a professional. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's be real. I'm the professional of this. Yes. And where am I on time? I'm so sorry. Ooh. <laughs> Guys, I, I feel like I really want to talk about, can I, can I keep going, talk about this? We're, we're getting late, but I just feel so strongly. I, this is, what I'm doing right now is giving us a map of our, of our philosophy of discipleship and of the spiritual life, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's a bigger picture for what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to walk with Jesus? Yeah. Okay, um, and we're going to get back to, I haven't even talked about Philippians yet, okay? But we're going to hit on Philippians. Really briefly, I'm going to talk about guilt and shame. Guilt, right, is around the doing, and there's guilt because when we, sin, we do something wrong, we do something sinful, we create separation, right? And we feel guilt around that. Oh, that was wrong. I shouldn't do that. Shame, on the other hand, is more connected not to the, being, to the doing, but to the being, right? Something's broken in me. I, I, I still feel lonely, I still feel insignificant. I still feel like something's wrong. And I keep doing this thing that I'm guilty about. I keep, you know, I feel guilty about constantly lying, but I can't help it because deep down, you know, people say, I feel ashamed that I lied. It's like, no, you don't feel ashamed that you lied. What the shame is really around is that I still feel insignificant and I think I need to lie about who I am in order to feel important. And so there's shame around the brokenness. We feel shame. So the natural response to feeling shame is to want to hide is to want to cover it, want to say, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. I actually, no, 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 I don't feel insignificant. I don't feel lonely. I don't feel, I don't feel unloved. I don't feel alone. I don't feel unsupported. I don't, I, I don't feel scared. I don't feel whatever, worthless. I, I'm totally fine. I'm not broken anymore. I'm good, I swear. See, it, but shame, it, it's, there's a muscle in us that says it's, it's meant to make us feel something's wrong. I do feel shame because no matter how hard I try to feel important, no matter how hard I work in my career, I still feel like I'm not enough. And I'm ashamed of that. Why do I still feel like I don't matter? Why do I still feel like I'm alone? Why do I feel like st still feel like people don't love me or know me no matter how hard I try? And we feel shame about still feeling that loneliness, still feeling the brokenness, still feeling a disconnect. But something in our body is point telling us you're missing something. You need something and it needs to be filled, and you, but you don't know where to go and you don't know where to get it and you feel it's like something's wrong with you and you feel like it's up to you to fix it, right? So there's a measure of shame that's, that it's telling us, you're right, something's missing. Something's broken in you. 
But when we go into hiding is when we let the shame have rule over us. We let shame have power over our lives. But the gospel, it takes away the power of shame. It doesn't take away the feeling of shame, okay? Right? What I'm trying to say, it doesn't take away the feeling of shame or else we'd be like, yeah, nothing's wrong with me. I have no problems. I am not broken at all. It's like, oh, actually, something's wrong with you for thinking that, right? But, but shame is like, there is something missing in me. I still feel a need to prove myself, right? There, there's shame around that stuff. But the gospel says, even though you feel the shame, you don't have to hide. You can come. I already know that you're, you still think these things. Come back to me. Come back to me. You guys get what I mean? Guilt and shame. You know, and it's so sad because we, we let the shame of our brokenness, it keeps us clinging on to the things that make us feel safe and feel loved or feel significant, right? I still feel, you know, I still feel like I'm alone, but I don't want to admit it. I don't want to talk about it. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep being a part of my small group or church. I'm just going to, you hold on to things that still make you feel good. You hold on to the things that, that provide some level of comfort or some level of satisfaction, some level of fulfillment, because you don't want to address the fact that no matter how hard I try, I still feel broken. No matter how hard I try, and I, I feel like I've d- done my best and I still feel like I'm failing, something's missing, right? But, but don't let your shame make you cling on to the things that are holding you back, to cling on to the things that make you feel safe, that make you feel loved, to make you feel like you matter, right? And this is where we come back to Philippians 3. Because pa- Apostle Paul, I'm Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, he's addressing in verse 2, right? Let's, now we can read the passage, okay, we ready? Uh-oh. Um, oh, sweet. Okay, I forgot to include verse 1, but verse 1 says something important, probably. All right. Somebody, what's verse one? Somebody read it. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is joy to you. Yeah. Okay. So what Paul Paul is really, he's, he's transitioning. Okay. So I'm transitioning, but now let me say something important. Paul Paul says this, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He names three different things. He's talking about one group of people, okay? It's just like he's repeating this. He's talking about what they call the Judaizers, okay? And the Judaizers are the people that were in the church saying, yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. But you still need to get circumcised because you're not really in the church of God. You're not really part, you don't really matter to God until first you got to do this thing. You got to get circumcised, okay? And it was this huge issue. It happened all around the churches everywhere. A lot of these Jews, they still felt like, well, we need, we need to, the circumcision is what we used to have that made us feel important. The circumcision was what we used to have that set us apart, that told everybody that I'm the people of God and you're not. And so they hold on to this thing like, yeah, this is what makes me feel important. This is what makes me feel important. This is what reminds me that I'm good and you're bad. This is what tells me that I'm important and you're not. And so Apostle Paul is getting at these guys, these people, they're so fresh and called mutilators of the flesh because it's like, you know, circumcision is cutting, like flesh, right? And he's talking about these because these people are still feeling like they're holding on to the circumcision, they're still holding on. Like, I, now, they're Christians now. They're people who follow Jesus, but they still, th- oh, this one's bright, right? They still feel like I need circ- circumcision because this thing is what makes me feel important. 
This thing is what makes me feel special. This thing is what makes me f- reminds me that I'm really Jewish. And they're holding on to this thing, and they're trying to teach people, like, no, 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 you have to do this because that's what I have. That's what I've done, so you have to do it too. And what Apostle Paul is getting so frustrated is, don't you see you're still holding on to this thing to make you feel important, to make you feel like you matter. You're missing the point. So you say, We're, we are the circumcision. Wow. Right? We are who worship by the spirit of glory of Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh because all of these things, all of these things are what we do in the flesh to make us feel better. All of these things are what we do in the flesh because if I can just be helpful, if I can just be super smart, if I can just be successful, if I can just be really strong, if I can do this, then I'll finally feel safe. I'll finally feel important. I'll finally feel fulfilled in life. And all those things are the flesh. And the Apostle Paul is getting so frustrated because he looks at these Judaizers like, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. And he goes on, and he goes on to, to start talking about himself. He's, and he says, he talk, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. And he starts going to a resume about himself, right? And he says, I've been circumcised, and I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And uh, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, a zeal. And he names all these things. He's like, guys, don't you understand? I have so many reasons, so many things that I have accomplished in my life, that I've done, that can make me feel like I'm important. I have, I, I spent all my life trying to prove how great I am and how important I am. Because at the end of the day, I'm still trying to feel like I matter. I want God to look at me and say I'm doing a good job. And so I try harder and I try harder and all these things and all that. But he says this, but all of that stuff, everything, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This thing that could make me feel good about myself, I'm letting it go. Right? This thing that would make me feel important like I matter, I'm letting it go. Right? This thing that makes, me, that makes me feel like I really belong in the community of God because I'm, a, I'm a, from the tribe of Benjamin and we're one of the good tribes. You know, like, okay, good, I fit in. That's not what matters to me. All these things that I've done to try and make me feel like I finally could to fill the hole in my heart, right? All the things that I've done to try and, and get there and do that, I'm letting it all go. End of the day, I'm coming back and realizing I can't, I can't meet my own needs. I need Jesus. It doesn't matter how good of a Christian I am. It doesn't matter how good, how passionate I am. It doesn't matter how, how good of a Jew or all these things. All, it all comes back to one thing, getting on my knees and remembering, I need you. I need to come back to the source. There's nothing outside of that that can meet my needs. And I do it in a thousand ways. And he, so he's coming back. He's like, this is what the gospel is all about. That, that Jesus has broken down the wall. He's forgiven us of sin. And he's give, given us access back into the source of life. So that all the things that we used to do to try and fill the emptiness, the need, the longing in our hearts, we can let them go. Everything you've been trying so hard to do. Everything you've been, you've been straining, you've been striving, you've been spending your whole life trying to feel like, if I, can just, if I can just be pretty enough, if I can just be this, then find, someone will finally love me. And if someone will finally love me, then I finally won't feel alone anymore. If I can just, get, if I can just be really, really smart, or, or if I can just make a lot of money, then I'll feel successful. And all these things. And you're trying so hard, and you're trying, and you're, you're straining yourself, and all the stuff that you've been trying so hard to do to finally feel like you, you have a place, to finally feel like you're, you're loved, that you're seen, that you belong, to finally feel like you matter. 
The apostle is saying, you can let it go. You can let it go. You don't have to try anymore. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to earn anything. I can, I can meet, not, not Apostle Paul, but our Father can meet every need and every longing of our hearts. Every need and every longing of our hearts. And we can let it go. And this is this is can be difficult to swallow sometimes because I remember I was doing a, a something with a youth group a while ago, a long time ago, and um, I was basically telling them it was I think Ellie was there actually, but um, she's one of my old youth students, and where I was basically saying like, you guys know that like even when you're reading the Bible, you're being selfish because you're doing it because it makes you feel good, right? And it just was like this weird moment of like. But you told us to read the Bible, and you told me God will love me if I, I'm like, I didn't say that, you know, but, and <laughs> I told you the Bible, I didn't say it, and, but basically, like, one of the students got really frustrated, it's like, well, then what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And, and I was like, see, you're still under the impression that you need to be able to do something for God where you don't need anything, Right? You see, because a child, a child, a baby is not ashamed to say, oh yeah, I need, I need my mom. I need my dad. I'm actually really, you know, little kids say that. It's like, I don't have to pay the bill. It's like, why don't you have to pay the bill? Because I'm a kid, you know? And it's like, I don't know. And it just, it's, it's recognized. But as adults, we, we're told like, no, you shouldn't need anymore. Once you're mature, once you're, once you're become an adult, once you're strong, once you've got it all together, you won't need anymore. Now you'll be done and you can just help everybody, right? And that's what the spiritual journey has been really painted as. Hey, once you're saved, now you're good. So now you got to go help the world. But really it's, it's a lifelong journey of learning how to need God of learning how to need God for everything, of breaking all these, realizing like, man, I still think I need this thing. I still think I need that thing. I still think I need, I need this, and I'm trying so hard. I need to spend the rest of my life learning how to just need God and recognize that's okay. That's what makes me a child. That's what makes me a kid. That's what makes me a creation and him the creator. That's what makes me the son and him the father. It's that I need God. A child is not too proud to say, end of the day, I'm lonely still, and I can't do anything about it. Only you can feel that. End of the day, I still feel like no matter how much I do, I, I don't, I'm not really important. Only you can make me tell me that I matter, right? It's, it's the journey of learning to become young, young again. The journey of maturity is learning how to be a kid. Amen? And Paul goes on, and I'm going to wrap up real quick and burn through the last bits. But whatever gain, oh, can you go to the next one? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, right? For his sake, yeah, yeah, I, I just sped read that. <laughs> For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, right? That's what he's talking about is none of this stuff anymore. It's all just going to come from here. Right? It's all going to come from here. I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning how to do this and undo the power of this. Okay? Then go on. Just leave it up there for me. That I may know him 
in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, because in the gospel, what happens is this, is, is Jesus is inviting us to walk with him and become like him. This is where it gets really interesting because no one in all of history really learned how to live like this, fully connected to God, where they don't have anything that their, their identity, their anything is rooted in. They're fully rooted in the Lord, right? No one, no man in all of history, everyone had things, even, King, even the best of the Old Testament, you can't get it, but there was one man, and Jesus, he, he lived in this way. So coming back to Philippians 2, in the example of Jesus, what he's saying is, live like me. How could I, how could Jesus empty himself of glory? How could he empty himself of divinity and come down and be humble and serve and love and obey and even die on a cross for the sake of all of our sins, right? How could he do that? Because he was fully rooted. Because yes, Jesus is right here, right? He's the son, but he also became a man to show us the way. And so he invites us in. He says, live like me. Live like me because I lived like this. I didn't need to prove anything. I didn't need to get anything. I knew that my Father in heaven met every need of my heart. I, didn't, I don't need to protect myself. I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to earn anything. I can just come and I'm content. I'm at peace. I am at rest with my Father. And he invites us into that. And the Apostle Paul is talking about this. And I want to share with Jesus in his suffering. I want to I live like this. I want to learn. And that's what the resurrection is. Because what is the resurrection? The resurrection is that one day. Remember how I talked about the three Ps? Punishment of sin, power of sin. What's the last one? It's the presence of sin. That one day, there will be a day that I don't have to fight anymore to not feel lonely. Because I know that I'm a Christian. I know God loves me, but I still feel lonely sometimes, and I still feel like I don't matter, and I still feel like, I'm, I still feel like people don't understand me. And, but there's going to come a day when I don't have to fight so hard to try to feel seen. I don't have to fight so hard to let go of these things and, and be connected to God. There's going to come a day when I can finally feel like I am fully satisfied. I'm fully known, fully loved, and I don't have to question it, and I don't have to fight it anymore. And I can be completely rooted in God. And on that day that's the resurrection on when that day comes the presence of sin I will never feel empty again I will never feel alone again I'll never question again I'll never feel that anxiety again I'll never feel alone I'll never feel insignificant I'll never fear again for my life I'm gonna know that he's with me forever and that's the resurrection but we learn to live in that we spend the rest of our lives learning how to live in this but how do we do it because here's the truth. If you sit very still, if you never try to do anything for the rest of your life, if you never try to make a difference, if you never try to love your neighbor, if you never try to build the kingdom of God, you'll never see ways that you're still doing this. Because as we try to live like Jesus, as we try to build the kingdom of God, as we build meaningful relationships, like I, I'm telling you this, like I remember I had a person say, like, I felt like I had no, I felt so healthy when I was single. I was single and I felt like I had my rhythms in life and I was so consistent and I just was like satisfied in my friendships and all that stuff. It's like I started dating. 
And the anger that I felt, <laughs> the, the, the jealousy, the frustration, all of a sudden, me trying to have a meaningful relationship, it brings up, oh shoot, I still have this. You ever try to love somebody who's difficult to love? Somebody who like every time you like try to bring something up, they're like, oh no, you're just being crazy. There's gaslight you or whatever, all that stuff. It's going to be like, you're disrespecting me. You're disrespecting me. And you realize, oh my gosh, I need to feel respected. I still have this need to feel respected. And when somebody offends me, I hate it. When someone disrespects me, I'm going to get them back and put them in their place. Because you realize, oh my gosh, I still feel like I need to prove that I matter. Right? I still have all these stupid little things that I do. Every time you get angry, every time you feel discouraged, every time you feel alone, it's, it's God gently exposing, hey, there are still ways that you're not rooted in me. Still ways you're not rooted in me. And that's the journey of sanctification. It is incredible how God does that, how he invites us. He, he calls us partners, right? Co-heirs co of the kingdom, co-collaborators. We are building the kingdom of God together. Every person in this room has a calling, right? That's part of what it means to, to find significance in God. You finally find your true purpose. I'm meant to build the kingdom of God. I'm meant to help and to serve and to love. Right? All that stuff. We find purpose in him. But somehow, in pursuing the purpose, in building the kingdom, in learning to become friends with people at church, in learning how to put up with, with Pastor Dell, or learning to put up with that annoying neighbor next to you, or, or whatever, in learning, to, in learning to dive deep into what happens right here, we are learning to become more like Jesus. It's crazy that God is using us to, to establish his kingdom, to build a kingdom in this world today. But in that process, we are learning to come to the fountain of life. Because every time we try to build, it just shows us, I need to be rooted in the Lord. I need to be rooted in the Lord. And so in our calling is also the journey of sanctification. And that's what that is. It's just identifying these things. It's looking in your heart, being real honest with yourself and realizing there's still emptiness that I'm still living in. There's still longing. There's still pain that I have that I'm compensating for. I'm still defensive about things. I'm still, I still, I'm still scared of certain things. I'm still whatever. I'm still neurotic in all these ways. But God is showing me ways that I can come to receive grace. Right? Because when you first get saved, you feel like, oh, I'm fully, all of this is all here. I don't have any of this anymore when you first get saved. And then you start going through stuff, like they call it the dark night of the soul, right? And it's like, oh, I'm not as great as I thought. I've only, I only, of this big triangle, I only have a little portion here that's filled by God. Right? And little by little, it's God is saying, this needs to break down. It needs to get a little bigger. Right? And then we go through more, we get more frustrated and it breaks down again gets a little bigger and God's like I want more I want to fill more space I want I want everything I want to be able to fill your heart completely yeah. right? and I'm okay I'm gonna let you go through all kinds of frustrating things I'm gonna actually call you to love difficult people because they need to be loved but also your heart needs to grow right I want to show you that I can be everything you need man I'm I'm done I was just, you know, it, it all comes back to even Philippians 1 where it says this. Well, before I say that, you know, I'm, even just like two days, was it three, two days ago, I was, I was with my wife and she was doing stuff and 
I was working on some stuff. I, I'm starting kind of a new venture in my life. I don't know. I haven't really talked to any people about it, but I'm starting kind of like a new business um, and to develop a new source of income. And if I'm honest, I'm like, you know, building a website, trying to do all this stuff. And I felt kind of discouraged one night. It was like 7 p.m. I just felt kind of discouraged. And because I was trying, but I felt like insecure about like, oh, is it going to go well? Is it going to do this? I don't know. And I started feeling really like sad. And I went out into my living room and I saw Sarah and she was working on her stuff and her, she's killing it in her business. And I'm like, make me feel insecure. And that's no, kidding. But I was sitting there and I was like, Sarah, can I talk to you for a minute? And she's like, yeah, of course. And I don't know why, but I just feel kind of off. I feel discouraged. Right? And I was trying to, because it's as simple as this looks, it's so hard. It's so hard because I just knew, I felt something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And I sat there and I just started thinking about it. And she's like, well, what are you feeling? Right? I'm like, you know, if I'm honest, I kind of feel like, I, it took me like 30 minutes. To, I just was rambling and kind of, like, okay, no, I think I know what I'm feeling. I kind of feel like how I used to feel when I was, when I was in junior high. When my mom was crippled by depression and she couldn't get out of bed and couldn't care for me and my, my dad was gone. He had abandoned our family and, and, I, and the last thing he told me was like, hey, you gotta learn to do it on your own. You can't depend on anybody. And I, would be, I was like 12 years old and feeling like I'm alone. And I felt like the future was so scary. And I, I, was, I, I was 12 years old feeling like the future is scary and I have to figure out the future and I don't know what to do and I can't and I, I, I can't do it and I feel like I, I don't know if I can make a difference. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can sit, protect myself. I don't know if I can take care of my mom. I don't know, I don't know if I can do any of these things and I felt so alone and, and I was talking with her and suddenly I started getting really emotional and feeling tender and it's like, you know, sometimes I still feel like I'm alone. Sometimes I still feel like I'm alone. Sometimes I still feel like I have to figure it out and I don't know what to do and I don't feel like I have the wisdom or the strength or the resources to do it and I, and I get scared. And it was so raw because I know that's like, that's how easily could Sarah be like, oh, that's not true. That's not true. It's like, I know, but she was like, you feel lonely, huh? She didn't say that, but she just was there. She's listening. And I know it's hard and it's reminding me of the pain I used to have and how I still feel these things sometimes and how I still go back to feeling like, I, I'm alone and I'm not going to matter unless, unless I do something great and I'm so scared that I'm not going to be good enough to do it and I'm going to find out that I don't matter, right? I'm going to feel insignificant. I'm going to feel unimportant. I'm going to feel like a fool. I'm going to feel like an idiot. I'm going to be humiliated of myself and it's, so, it's hard. It's embarrassing to admit those things but in that moment, it, was, it felt so raw for me. I had to be honest about it and God was showing me like, like I just felt his grace like, he was listening and it was so gentle. He's like, oh man, you still think you don't matter. You still think you, you still, you're trying so hard to do a good job because you still feel like if you do a good job, then you'll finally feel like you matter. And he was letting me see that. He's letting me see my brokenness still. And, and Sarah, so graciously, we, we prayed together in that moment because Sarah has the wisdom to know. Sarah has the wisdom to know that she can't fill that need. She can try and be like, no, you matter so much. You're so good. You're so, and sometimes we need that. But she knows at the end of the day, there's something in, them, in my heart that I could, she could never fill. And we came before God and I, you know what? 
It was so simple. I just closed my eyes. I said, God, are you with me? Because I still feel alone sometimes. And I know it's stupid. I know I'm not alone. I know, I know, I know I'm not alone. But sometimes I feel like I'm alone. And I just asked him, are you with me? And what he was doing, he was breaking down these walls. And he was bringing me back here. And he was saying, Andrew, don't you know, I've always been with you. I will always be with you. And every time you feel alone, don't worry. Just come back. Let me remind you again that you're not alone. And I ask God, can I do this? God, do I matter? It's asking the simple things, the things that I already know the answer to in my head. I know the answer to it, but something in my heart, something in this stupid little triangle, right? It's just, I still feel like I need to prove something. And God just gently bringing me back. Yeah, ask me again. Ask me again if I still, if you still matter. Let me tell you again how valuable you are to me. Let me tell you again how much I love you. Let me wrap you in my arms like a child again and tell you that you matter to me, that I'm always going to be here for you. And it was so beautiful because I was, I was, the gospel is so simple. We're empty and God, God wants to fill us. I don't feel loved and God loves us. But in that moment, man, it felt, it was me remembering again the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that he has, he has come to me that he can fill me and meet my every need so that I could be fully rooted in him.